Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Welcome to the second part of this two-part episode. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, we, we highly recommend you do so. Dr. Merv Travers goes through the framework of the predictive processing lens and how to apply it through your plan of care. In, in this episode, we dive into a bit more of the clinical application of this framework, and we go through a clinical case with one of Dr. Travers' patients, as well as covering the concept of anti-fragility. We hope you enjoy. So I feel like we've been talking about this in the realm of chronic pain. Is this just for patients with chronic pain or does this apply to other patient populations as well? Look, I think pain is pain. It's always a perceptual inference, you know, and it's based on the interaction of kind of incoming sensory information and prior predictions about the likely causes of that sensory information. I think that's how kind of perception works. So that's kind of a modern view, looking at it through a predictive processing lens, which suggests, look, you've got information within your system already, and that is used to inform a model that generates predictions of incoming sensory information. And so that nociceptive traffic is part of some of that incoming information. But I suppose to get a kind of lived experience with it, you know, I used to be a rugby player and I remember playing in a game 20 years ago, maybe. And I went to the dentist the next morning because I woke up that morning and I, fe- I felt like, hey, my, my teeth feel funny. I hadn't really done much, but couldn't kind of make sense of why my teeth felt that funny. So I'm, I'm probing around in my mouth and my tongue and I'm pushing on my teeth, trying to have I knocked a tooth loose? You know, kind of what's, what's going on here? And then I went to the dentist and I was, while I was sitting in the chair, I was like, you know, I got it. I think my teeth don't line up. They took a mold and they're like, hey, you know, you're right. Your teeth don't really kind of line up, right? I was like, hey, I thought so. And then they said, okay, well, we're going to take a little x-ray. And then they came back like, oh, so... We think you've broke your mandible and 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 your neck. <laughs> and so for me, I was like, nah, get out of here. There's no way. And they're like, no, 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 you need to go to the hospital, right? And um, and so look, that, that was the case. I, I, I'd taken off a couple of transverse processes in my neck and I, I, I'd fractured my mandibular condyle. But to me, I, I'd had no pain, you know, so totally frank trauma and no pain at all. And, you know, in the context, the, the contextual cues of playing rugby, I'm getting my teeth kicked in anyway. What's the difference, right? But for whatever reason, it didn't evoke that threat response. And only to the level the next morning was like, look, my teeth kind of just feel a bit funny. Yet this morning I was coming down the stairs and I stood on a piece of Lego. And I can tell you that was, didn't do a lot of damage, but I let some expletives out, which made me feel better. But, but certainly I had pain and, you know, it was dark. It was early morning. I wasn't expecting it. So, so, but my point is, you know, so even in the context of acute injuries and acute pain, and I have a background working in professional sports, and we, we, we kind of mix these terms all the time. You know, someone has an injury. Well, maybe they just, they've reported pain. Do we, do we know they have an injury? You know, and so that, that line gets really blurred. Whereas I think, it, you know, down that more persisting pain pathway, we're probably more confident a lot of the time saying, look, we're past the normal healing time. Therefore, we're reasonably happy, maybe not a massive inflammatory driver in the tissues, for example, in the absence of there being some inflammatory disease or something. So I think pain is always pain. The timeline, you know, it's not like you pass day 83 and some switch flicks and we're like, okay, now you're now you've got persisting pain or now you've got chronic pain or whatever label you go on. And I think all of those other human factors are always relevant. You know, the, the process of perception weighs in on your 
internal model and all the information orally held in your system. And it doesn't really care for whether it's three days deep into the episode or 30 days into an episode or three years into an episode. Can you actually provide any recommendations for how to do that? I think that can be tough to, number one, like time constraints with evaluations are present, at least in the health system in America, or even just comfort asking those questions that can be personal. Maybe the patient isn't expecting to be asked about their home life when they're coming in for their back pain. Can you give recommendations about how to approach that? Certainly for me, when I was more junior as a physio, I was probably a bit self-conscious and a bit like, oh gosh, this is kind of awkward to ask some of this stuff. And I've definitely had times where I've seen, you can see in your patient like, oh gosh, I wasn't expecting to be asked that. And I think you need to be prepared that maybe you just have a very short preface that says, look, we understand that pain isn't all about what's happening in the tissues. And for example, I have a sore back and when I'm doing exams, it always feels worse because of the lack of sleep and stress. Do you find there's other things that are non-physical that affect your back? You know, it might help to, to kind of preface it with something, give a little something of yourself, you know, that, 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 and an example that might actually anchor them a little bit. But also I, I think my experience with it has been very much that once I start that conversation, the information tends to flow from the patient actually. And so it's about listening. We can give advice about how best to ask that stuff. But to be honest, I think once you ask it in any remotely sensitive way, it then becomes about listening. It's not about you. It's about that person and and, and making them feel comfortable. And you build that rapport and they volunteer that information more freely. If, If it's used and you validate them and you validate their pain, you validate their experience. Because a lot of people may be coming to your clinic thinking, it's my back, it's all about the tissues. And, and I need you to fix it. But they might have lingering thoughts in their mind that like, hey, you know, it's worse when my, you know, I'm up all night, my kids are crying and I, can't, I don't get any sleep. Like they've lived the experience of their life and the pain they have with it. They just might never have been asked. Sometimes reflect back what they say as well, you know, like, okay, so what does that actually mean to you? And, and I think, you know, something that is, is really nice if people want something to anchor to is Sam Bunsley, who's a, who's a researcher over here in Australia. She's done fabulous qualitative research in, in people with, well, in, in multiple groups, but certainly in people with low back pain. And, and she's worked on the common sense model of pain, which suggests that kind of people with persisting low back pain, they kind of have five core domains under which they try to understand their pain. You could use that framework to go, okay, well, at least I want to get some information across all of these domains. And so the first one is, is identity beliefs. Kind of what have you been told is wrong with your back? Oh, I, you know, I have disc bulges. And then the second domain is beliefs about the potential causes of, of that problem. So it's why do you think your discs are bulging or what, how, what has been said about your discs, why they're bulging? Uh, well, it's caused by my bad posture or it's caused by my job or it's caused by repeatedly picking up my kids, whatever it is, you know, it's about the causes. Then the next uh, domain is consequences. So I think this is really important. And we've done some, some work over the last year as a team and, 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 you know, kind of sounds pretty bleak when you ask people with back pain about the future. And this is about the consequences. And, and they'll say things like, you know, my spine will crumble or I don't want to end up in a wheelchair. I'm never going to play sport again. I can't run. So getting a handle on what their understanding of the consequences are. If someone believes, look, my spine's going to crumble when I flex and you're thinking, well, I want to get this person to the gym and do deadlifts. You're not on the same page. The next domain is, is perceived self-control. 
their idea around the controllability of the pain. So they might be telling you things like I should stop when I feel any pain. I use my pain as a barometer to judge how much activity I should do. Or So it's about controllability. And then the last is kind of expectations of how long the pain will last. Always have this weakness now in my back. So it's never going to be the same again. I just have to live with it now, for example. And so, that, so, so to kind of sum those up, you want to ask about like the labels and explanations they've been given. You want to ask about the causes, what's causing that dysdegeneration or whatever it is they've been told. What are the consequences of that? That's really, really important. Perceive self-control. So like, how do you manage it? You know, how do you get on top of it? And then the expectations of how long the pain will last. This is a framework that, that's based on, on Sam's work in, in chronic low back pain populations. And I think you can use it in, in other patient populations as well, but it might anchor you to go, look, at least I've got some handle on those domains. The other thing that's really important for me, though, is, as I said, you know, that person's back is connected to them and they have a central nervous system and they exist in the world and that world has other people in it. And so I think it's really important that you actually are willing to ask, okay, like, you know, so who are the other kind of major people in your life and how does your back affect them? Because you think about the last few domains I spoke to you about, they're all about my understanding, its effect on me. It might not necessarily fish information about the kind of social side of things. You just did a wonderful job going over what to ask about in the history. And earlier we discussed the four steps of understanding, feeling, experiencing, and reinforcing that it's safe to move. Do you have a good example of how to put this all together for us? So a patient I'm seeing at the moment, uh, he's a young guy uh, in his mid-20s, five-year history of knee pain after he was a, a formerly a rugby player and had an ACL repair five years ago, uh, developed kind of persisting post-surgical knee pain. And over those five years, he went to see lots of different physios. During that time, no one would do anything more than body weight or Pilates-based exercises for this guy who wanted to get back to playing kind of elite rugby. So it's a million miles all off the mark. He, he then went back to his surgeon and, and the surgeon said, oh, look, I think you need a clear out and I clean out of the knee. And he went in there and he did his little thing. He told him, look, the ACL is intact, but then he drew him this picture of his femoral condyles and highlighted in all the areas of different grades of degeneration. Told him to stop walking on it, stop using the knee. He'll never run again. And he's going to need a knee replacement by the time he's 30. And so this is a gentleman who has a young child and wasn't able to run around with the young child. So that was affecting him on a personal kind of family level. Uh, he put on a load of weight. So that was affecting him on health and his mental health in a lot of ways. He, he was stripped of being able to play sports, which is a big part of his kind of whole social identity. He worked on his feet as a, as a porter in a hospital. So he was doing long shifts walking basically around the hospital. And he was saying, look, I need to change jobs. I need to wear a knee brace. And so he kind of came to me going, look, you're kind of like, can you help me? Because otherwise I'm going for the knee replacement because this is what he's been told. So he's developed over those five years, this pain expectant kind of internal model. He's like, look, my knee is busted. My knee is degenerative. He's got, he's been shown images of it. He's been told this stuff by the surgeon. You know, so, so all of these things are entwined in it, right? What I think was really important in terms of kind of providing evidence of safety was his, his physical exam. So part of his education was during his physical exam. You know, when I was testing his knee and doing, you know, the ligament tests, you know, this knee is feeling pretty okay as far as I can tell, whatever sensitivity and specificity you got with those tests. But, you know, I'm kind of using that to reinforce. Can you see how I'm pulling on this really hard and your knee's actually not crumbling and it's it's not falling apart? And so you're trying to provide true evidence. That's that's So education, that first step, isn't just about words. 
I think, I think a really skilled assessment or physical examination can be a really powerful evidence of safety and the starting point for your, for your education. So then, you know, after we had a bit of a chat about, look, what those things mean on a scan and, and kind of how common they might be and how they might not necessarily relate to pain and, and various different things. So when I got him into the gym and, and, and started asking him to do some movements, asked him to step on a, a six-inch step, he said, look, I couldn't do that. He said, okay, um, could you do a little lunge for me? He said, no, I just, I couldn't do it. Why? I don't feel confident and it will hurt. He said, okay, well, how about this? And I got him doing a little, I got him into a Smith machine. So he was super stable, right? So he's, and he's standing on one leg in a Smith machine doing a small three-inch mini squat. And I'm kind of told him, look, you're not going to, your knee's not going to give way. You're completely stable, all that kind of stuff. And he does it. He goes, hey, actually, that hurt less than I thought. Okay, now we've got to double down here on this. And so from a perceptual point of view and feeling that it's safe to move, we did lots of repetitions at slightly different depths and slightly different speeds. And he was, so he wasn't attending to the pain. He was attending on trying to perform a task with a different kind of goal objective. So do this at a different speed, et cetera. But that's also became the building blocks, you know, to getting him back squatting and doing step ups on boxes, et cetera, et cetera. It was his movement experimentation was just about finding some kind of squat-based movement that he felt comfortable with and doing it in a way that provided him with evidence of safety. He could see his knee in a mirror in front of him. We restricted the range so that he was blocked, so he couldn't drop down any more than just a few inches. And the whole idea was just finding something he can do. And I really think what's important with movement experimentation should inform what you exercise program, whatever you do. But the focus has got to be on what you can do, not on what you can't do. And what I really, what it sounds like you've done here is really taken his goal and and tried to get a foothold somewhere on that road to his final destination where he can perform a variant of that movement, either pain-free or at least with, with a significant decrease from his expectation of pain and, and building from there. But really what seems most important is that you picked a movement that was clearly really valuable to the patient. You didn't say, okay, let's start with some leg lifts and start here. You, you, you picked a weight-bearing squat-based movement that meant a lot to him. The task has to be valued for them. They got to see the link between those tasks and those exercises and whatever their desired outcome will be. Right. So if I lay him on his back and have him doing just leg lifts, that's evidence to him that he's a million miles from being a rugby player. Right. I mean, of course, if I tried everything else, I had nothing else. Well, then maybe that's where I've got to go. I think you got to try and experiment and find ways that manipulate the type of exercise or task that they really value and want to do. And if you introduce that prediction error and they're like, look, that actually feels a little bit better or it surprises them because it violates their expectations, then you can have that conversation, reinforce the messaging you've already given them, but also use that as a foundation for how you begin your exercise program. And because he had been an elite kind of strength, kind of power athlete as a rugby player, it was a really highly valued thing for him it wasn't picked kind of arbitrarily you know he was like look it would just make my day if I could go to the gym and squat and I could do some of the stuff it's like okay cool let's see if there's some movement that's in some way squat based that we can start you with and your whole programming then becomes about drip feeding more of that activity I'm not saying that you forego the idea of traditional gym-based exercise or how you'd prescribe that stuff I'm saying I think this is an interim step for a lot of people 
it's an experiment. Like he knew that, look, I might, I don't know where the line, where the ceiling is here and we might push you through from time to time. And we're trying to find that balance between enough that he feels like he's getting a stimulus and you're providing credible evidence of safety to the central nervous system. Not so much that you tip, tip him up over the other, other end and, you know, he's going to get a flare up. But, but what's really important here is you can't just get that guy, throw him in the gym and say, look, get strong, mate, you'll be fine. The education subserves all of that because his understanding of his problem informs his internal model. And that re-education, if you will, is part of your subjective exam, is part of your objective exam. It's not just this intervention you give at the end that's just some throwaway words around pain. How do you manage those those flare-ups and how do you differentiate between that's just part of this process of, of learning how to feel that it's safe to move and experience that it's safe to move versus actually, oh, we, we actually should be addressing, like we could actually be causing some more, let's call it damage. I think an area that does this really nicely is in, in the tendinopathy world where they use that pain monitoring model. And for with this guy, we we did something similar where, where we had to chat about how pain works. We had to chat about what, you know, understanding that if you have a flare up like this it's if you fell off your bike slammed it into slammed your leg into the curb and now your ankle is pointing in the opposite direction i'm i'm, I'm quite happy to chalk that up to you know we've done something here right if you're just doing this task and we've been doing it for a while and it's been going really well and you know you do get a flare up it could mean we've done something too much and we'll figure it out or it could be reflect on some of those other contextual stuff you know, did you get less sleep? Was your child sick? Were you under more stress? And some of those other things that can affect pain as a percept as well, but also deeply rooted in that understanding, his understanding, his buy-in that the pain wasn't just about tissue damage. Him understanding that his system has just learned to be kind of overly protective and it's not a smooth journey out of that. And I think it's, I think you have to be open with that conversation at the start. If your patient has an expectation that, okay, I went to see Merv, it's going to be a smooth run out of here. That's, that's not how it works. And they need to be prepared. And, you know, I'd always speak to them and prep them about the idea of flare-ups, what they mean, you know, et cetera, so what, and having a contingency in place if that happens. And also for some, even just distinguishing and understanding, look, you might just get some DOMS, you might just get some muscle soreness because you've not been using this body part. So if you do get some of that, that's okay. In fact, it's desirable, but you know, you need to be able to distinguish that from your symptoms as well. You know, what strikes me on this is, is that, you know, going into PT school, I really thought the PT was the, the, the correlate to the mechanic, right? So the mechanic fixes cars and we fix bodies. But that's really not what's happening here. You know, when he goes back to his surgeon, he's still going to get a picture that shows arthritis and cartilage damage, etc. So you didn't fix him per se, but you but you did have but you didn't have to, right? You acted as a mentor, an educator, and a as a guide to get him from where he was back to back to his goal activity. Well, the thing for me is, I, like, it's a really privileged position, right? So when someone comes into the clinic and they sit down in front of you and they're like, hey, fix my knee, in some ways you can think, oh, my goodness, you have no idea what you're asking of me. But at the same time, you can go, well, look, what a privileged position to be in to be able to help this person. But I don't see myself ever as a physio, actually, or, or as a strength and conditioning coach or whatever else. I see myself as a project manager. Like my, my job is to manage the project. I'll, I'll resource you with the resources you need. I'll educate you with the stuff that you might need. We'll try some stuff, you know, we'll experiment together. But, you know, the key thing is the, the patient understanding that they're part of the process. I'm not going to fix you. 
I'm a project manager. You and getting you back to your goals is the project. So that means your input, your feedback at all times is incredibly valuable in the process. Merv, Dan and I were able to read an awesome piece that you wrote about anti-fragility. And I think that that applies to a lot of the things that we've talked about today. Could you go into that a little bit? We've gotten to this world where the spine has been viewed as being fragile and, and, and breakable. You look at the ads on the TV, you look at even the information that's in, in medical textbooks, even to a certain extent, it's viewed as this special fragile structure and the human body is being fragile. And we kind of gotten ingrained in this pathonatomical model where we think that stuff breaks all the time. But then I think about it, I think, what's the opposite of fragile? And when I ask this repeatedly, people always say strong. And they say, okay, well, give me an example of something that's fragile. And they say, like a wine glass. Okay, you drop a wine glass on the floor, it's probably going to smash. Okay, well, what's the opposite of that? Well, maybe a, a, a stone or a rock that's strong. I'm like, okay, well, if you drop that, that rock on the floor, it might survive, but it's no better for that shock, which means we've got to shift the spectrum further to this idea of anti-fragility, right? So you think about the human body, you can go to the gym, or go for a run or whatever, you can stress your physiology and your anatomy to a certain point, recover and be better for that stressor. We don't just look to survive what we're doing. And what I try and instill in my patients, even when they've had an injury, is that we want you to come out of rehab better than you were before and be anti-fragile, have an anti-fragile mindset. And I wish I was clever enough to be the person who thought up of that idea, but it, all, it so comes from a book that I read years ago called Anti-Fragile by uh, Nassim Taleb. It just resonated so strongly and I've integrated it with my whole kind of philosophy of practice. And, and so dealing with flare-ups, for example, for me is an evidence of anti-fertility, that you can absorb that stressor, you know, learn from it, be better for it and move forward on your path, path towards anti-fertility. Merv, I mean, it has been so wonderful to have you on and share. I mean, this framework is is so clinically applicable and uh, it's just it's just been awesome to actually hear like how you not only teach this stuff and, and then also just like how you apply it to patients that it, it to be able to have both in in one in one shot is incredibly valuable. So thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. It really has been a really has been a pleasure. So thank you very much. Where can people find you on social media? Yeah, so I, I run a company that provides continuing education for physios uh, and, and other kind of exercise and health uh, professionals. We run a series of courses on integrating strength and conditioning principles into physiotherapy, tendinopathy, rehab, SNC for physiotherapy courses, and been integrating pain science and exercise science. That's so optimize rehab, optimize with an S. On social media, I am on Twitter, so Merv Travers. And uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook as Optimized Rehab as well. So they find where I teach in my courses and all that kind of stuff. Merv, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been phenomenal to have you on. Please check out the show notes for clinician and patient-facing resources regarding chronic pain. And as always, thank you for listening to JOSPT. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.